we might have a preconceived idea of something, whatever it might be. For example, self-storage is the best real estate asset class you can buy, hands down. Well, maybe you're presented with new evidence that says mobile home parks are actually a bit better. Apartments in certain markets are actually better. So we should be willing to change our mind when presented with new evidence or new information. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to introduce to you Ash Patel. He's a full-time commercial real estate investor. He's going to be doing the interview today and a lot of them moving forward. I'm still going to be doing interviews, just not as many. And he is going to ask tough questions while still building rapport. That way it's not awkward. He's a good friend of mine. Join me in welcoming Ash Patel. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Chris Bennett. Chris is joining us from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He's a full-time investor and is a managing partner in a self-storage company. Chris has 14 years of real estate experience, which includes a residential brokerage, multifamily, and self-storage. He also launched a fund on CrowdStreet to buy smaller storage facilities and unman them. Chris, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Ash, I'm doing well, man. Happy to be here. Thank you. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. Right now, focused on self-storage acquisitions. We have just launched a $50 million fund to go out and buy self-storage facilities across business-friendly states and growing cities and suburbs, Texas, Colorado, and the Southeast. So that's exciting. We can talk more about that later on if you'd like to. But I got started back in 2007, just as you mentioned, doing residential foreclosures and brokerage, which is probably the worst time to get started in the industry. And nobody knew what was coming in 2008, 9, and 10, and so on and so forth. But it was interesting because I did work in the foreclosure business, as I mentioned, doing actual evictions, working with asset managers and banks to get properties renovated and put back on the market. It was not a fun job, but at least it was a job. I decided around 2011 that real estate really wasn't for me. And I wanted to go do something completely different, decided to go to school, go to college and try to make a career for myself in some other field. Coincidentally, got to UNC Chapel Hill and the only job or internship I could find was actually working for a private equity real estate firm that was buying apartment complexes. And I had no idea really what they were doing, but they hired me on basically as an analyst to help underwrite properties and underwrite deals. But long story short, I realized that you could purchase a property, commercial real estate apartment complex with other people's money and renovate it and hold it or sell it and obviously do really well for yourself. So at that point, I was hooked. I graduated from school there and went on to work for an office in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we were doing multifamily acquisitions, ended up pivoting to self-storage. We couldn't make some of the numbers work back then, so we pivoted to self-storage, and that's where I learned about the asset class and the opportunity there. And fast forward, and that's where we are today with PassiveInvesting.com, looking to go out and acquire self-storage facilities, as I mentioned earlier on. All right. Let's start at the beginning. What was your yeah. first acquisition? It was a self-storage facility in Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, by the way, just real quick, a clarification. I do live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'd lived in Chapel Hill previously, but first deal was in Charlotte, North Carolina, a uh, smaller mom and pop, bought it for 1.3 million, had 40 units. I forgot how many exact units there were, but 40 units needed to be trashed out or just cleaned out. The lady who owned the place had no idea who was even renting those units, had no lease whatsoever. They just had stuff in them. So we ended up trashing those out. We took occupancy from, let's call it 70% up to about closer to 90% within 60 days. 
by literally just having a website that people could rent units online. So that was the first deal, probably one of the best deals, most memorable deal to me. Chris, the numbers on that, 1.3 million, where did the money come from? That was the first deal that we did with the fund that you mentioned on CrowdStreet. So that was with a different firm that we raised that fund. It wasn't just me. It was all of us together. We raised that fund on CrowdStreet and that's where the capital came from. So we used them. This was in 2017. I think it was 2017. So we used CrowdStreet and that's where the most of the capital came from. And obviously we put in some of the money ourselves as well and guaranteed the loan, et cetera. What was that process like raising money on CrowdStreet? It's a good question. A lot of people ask that. It was very easy to work with them. Now, I'm sure that they've changed some of their policies and costs and all that stuff since that time was four years ago now, but it was a bit expensive. So you pay for that upfront, but they are the ones, it's almost like what Joe Fairless does and what you're doing and others who start a podcast and put content out there. You're essentially becoming your own crowd street, right? You're bringing investors in, educating them, and then placing them into deals, the deals that kind of make sense for those investors. That's what CrowdStreet was doing. And obviously they charge a fee for doing so. So it made life easy for us that we didn't have to go out there and build the platform from scratch. But obviously there's a trade-off to everything. There's a trade-off to that. There's a cost to it in order to do so to use their platform. But all in all, great experience. They helped us a ton. And it was just all around fantastic. What was the vetting process like? How deep did they go into the deal or your background? They do pretty much, I would say, what anybody else does, obviously verifying backgrounds, criminal history, all that kind of stuff, financial, any issues there. As far as the team is concerned, they ask about all the deals that we had done up to that point. Now, I personally had not done zero deals, but the guys I worked for had done a good number. I can't remember the number now, but maybe let's call it 15 to 20 deals and multifamily and some other smaller stuff. So they vetted those deals to make sure that they were legit, that they were verified investors in those deals, actually owned the properties, which is pretty important. So they went pretty deep on all of it. I remember that they sent a ton of emails back and forth, just trying to ask for clarification on our underwriting on that one deal, uh, of course, for the fund. That was the first one going into the fund. So asking us questions about that deal and the whole team. So they did, I think, a very thorough process that you would expect from a platform like that. And you didn't know the investors that raised capital here, right? No, we didn't know any of them. So they all came in. I think our minimum, it was either 25 or 50. I think it was 25,000, if I remember correctly. And again, that was for the fund, of course. So our goal was to raise $10 million at the time. But yeah, we didn't know any of them. They would send questions. They can communicate with us directly, of course. If they wanted to hop on a call, we could do so. There's no issue with that. CrowdStreet would try to handle a lot of the questions as they could, but there's always some that they can't always answer. So it was very transparent. So it wasn't like we were behind some curtain that nobody could get to us or something like that. No, we didn't do it that way. So we did talk to a few investors, but the majority just ended up investing with us just based on trust. And I think the CrowdStreet platform helps give you a little bit of credibility when you're first starting out because they do vet you before you actually get on the, on the platform. Again, those rules have probably changed in the last four years and what they're allowing on the platform. But at the time, that was what it was like. And would you use them again? Oh, sure. I don't think we need to because we've built our, in a sense, quote unquote, our own version of CrowdStreet with a podcast, YouTube channel, et cetera, and doing interviews like this. But would we use them in the future? Sure. If uh, cost benefit made sense, absolutely. Because they're a great platform. Good. Yeah. So Chris, you mentioned you took smaller mom and pop facilities and unmanned them. How do you do that? That's a great question, man. So there's a couple of schools of thought, really only two, I guess you'd say, in the storage space two mainstream thoughts. So either one is you have to have a manager on site full-time. And that's pretty commonplace. You go to a hotel, you go anywhere, you see somebody there working there behind the counter. Storage was for a very, very long time, 
like that when you get to the larger deals. Now, some of the smaller mom and pop deals, like let's say it's a 20,000 square foot deal, or let's call it under a dollar amount. Let's say it's under $2 million purchase price. Some of those deals, you can't actually afford someone to be there full-time, or you might have someone part-time, something like that. Or you say, you know what, I have a full-time job and I'm going to have someone there full-time anyway or part-time and just pay them and just kind of bite the bullet. That eats into your NOI, of course. So the way you can operate them in a sense, unmanned or unattended, the word nowadays is usually unattended. It's become very popular now, but unattended meaning you have a call center. So when someone wants to rent a unit, they find you online via Google or whatever. They make a phone call. It goes directly to the call center and the call center is usually a third party call center. So they handle calls for all kinds of storage facilities, not just yours. So there's trade-offs with that. But the point is, is they call and ask questions to the call center, usually price, location, size, availability of units, how the lease works, et cetera. The manager is not there, obviously, to take calls. So what do you do when the person goes and shows up? Well, if you have questions on where their unit is or get lost or something like that, or have any other questions on maybe just access issues or whatever, where can I put the truck and all that kind of stuff? Again, the call center answers all of those questions. The trade-off with that, the biggest labor-intensive part of self-storage is actually overlocking people who are late on their payments. So in multifamily, you might obviously get a late payment and late notice, and then if it keeps going, you evict the person, right? Well, in storage, everything's locked behind doors. So when that person is late on their payment for the month, the manager goes out and puts an overlock is what it's called, but it's basically just another combo lock right on the little latch there so that the tenant cannot go and take their lock off and access their goods. Once they pay, the manager goes out, takes the lock off, and now the tenant can access their goods. So that's a labor-intensive part of things. Well, how do you solve that issue as far as overlocking people and then taking the lock off when they pay because people want access to their stuff? At 10 Federal, they developed the Da Vinci lock is what they call it, and basically it's a combo lock where – on the lock itself, there's a serial number. You text that number to a phone number and you'll get the combo text right back to you. And you can take the lock off yourself as a customer. So you were late, you made your payment. You want to get that lock off so you can access your goods. Text that serial number to the phone number. They give you back another number, which is the combo to the lock. And now you take it off and place it in the Dropbox on your way out of the facilities. And then we hired 1031 guy or gal to go by and make sure the place is clean. They stop by usually once or twice a week to make sure it's clean and order. There really isn't that much to do at self-storage, to be honest with you. So they go by, just make sure everything looks good. They do the rent roll check to make sure all the locks are in the right units, so on and so forth, answer any questions that we might have about, we saw something on the camera, can you take a look at this thing or whatever it might be, or pick up that piece of trash, somebody left behind something, get rid of that and get it off the property. So usually, again, institutional or larger deals, you have them with a manager on site who handles all that stuff. Smaller deals, mom and pop deals, which is what we were doing. You can run it other ways like this by using a call center and some 1031 folks to run by and take care of your facility on a weekly basis. And there's an automated gate? Yeah, there's an automated gate. So when somebody rents a unit, they get their combo that gets them gate access. And they just punch that in. The gate opens up. They can get inside and do what they need to do and then leave. Yeah, can so that be remotely managed? The gate itself? Yeah, absolutely. So, so your management company can yeah. open the gate for somebody? Yeah, if there's an issue, we can always get the gate open. And let's say there's a power outage, because sometimes that happens as well. We have a facility that that's happened to a couple of times. We're replacing the keypad. But if there's a power outage on the gate itself, all they do is call the call center and say, hey, I'm stuck. On the gate itself, the mechanism that operates the gate, you just hit a little switch and now it becomes manual. 
and you can just open the gate and get out. So pretty easy. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. As your portfolio grows, you need financial management services you can rely on to help you save money and continue making the right choices for your company's future. Realestateaccounting.co's top-tier CFO team uses their deep industry and operating experience to guide real estate syndicators, investors, and family offices through every pivotal moment and crucial decision. Their fractional CFO services include budget to actual, cash flow and distributions, and reporting and valuation. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash CFO to find out why REA is one of the fastest growing real estate accounting companies around. The real estate experts provide timely analysis and consultations to help you make the most informed decisions possible. See and trust where your portfolio is headed with the customized financial reports based on the KPIs that matter to you and your business. Try it risk-free today at realestateaccounting.co forward slash CFO. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. Somebody doesn't monitor those cameras, right? Is it only if there's an incident? Yeah, it records usually, but if there's an incident, there's a couple ways to do it though. I know another company, they own a large portfolio of properties. Every single one of them is unmanned and they have cameras on site. Unattended. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you for correcting me. (laughs) Unattended. And they have a couple of security folks who actually work in shifts. Now this is a legit operation, right? They work in shifts and they watch and monitor all the cameras. So they're motion sensitive. So they don't actually keep running all the time unless somebody trips the motion or maybe I guess a rodent or something like that actually makes the camera turn on, but that's how they operate. So there's a couple of ways to do it. I would say that's the top of the food chain way to operate when you have 24 hour security guards watching cameras. Well, Chris, you make this sound easy. Should everybody go out and buy their neighborhood storage center when it's up for sale? I think they should, actually. (laughs) It's a little contrary answer, but I think they should. This is not a complicated business to get into. I was talking to someone earlier today, and they were saying, well, what's the mousetrap here? Doesn't sound like you're doing anything new in the industry besides the management. And in a sense, you're right. So in apartments, what are you doing? You're looking for an apartment complex. It could be a fourplex, a five, a 10, a 200 unit, whatever but you're going to buy it, renovate it, hold it, or flip it in five years, whatever the story, whatever that goal is. I think on the storage front, the opportunity is even greater for the smaller investor to get in to the business. We had a really small deal under contract. This is a while ago when I was doing stuff on my own with a partner. We had a really small deal, 2,500 square feet. That's small, 22 units on an acre of land. You can do a lot more with that acreage, park vehicles, put more units, whatever, and operate the whole thing remotely We had it under contract for $112,000 for 22 units here in Charlotte. So I absolutely think so. 
If somebody out there has some cash set aside, they want to jump into the business, 100%. Now you should get some help doing that. There's a lot of coaching and mentoring programs out there. I don't offer anything. I'm not selling anything, but there's a lot of programs out there that will help you get into the business. And I think that's actually very critical to help you get started. But yeah, I think you should. So the secret's out on mobile home parks, self-storage units. How do you still find deals in this market? Well, there's only one person to talk to, and that's the owner of a deal. So you build your pipeline, you build your lead source, I guess you'd say your list, and then you go through that and you literally call or send letters. You got to get in front of the owner in some way or stop by facilities. I've done that in the past, literally just pop in. Usually a mom and pop owner will be managing it themselves. So if you stop by, that's pretty good chance you'll end up talking directly to them versus an on-site manager. So anyway, you just got to do the work. And then people usually ask, well, how do you get a list? How do you put that together? We'll use a software data program called Yardi Matrix. Again, I don't get paid anything for saying this stuff, but you can reach out to Yardi Matrix and they will literally give you access, obviously for a cost. And it gives you the names, numbers, addresses of every single owner of every single facility that you want to contact within your target market. And you can download that to an Excel spreadsheet day one. You can download the whole thing, sort it, and remove the ones that are too big or outside your criteria or whatever, and boom, there you go. In Charlotte, there are approximately 450 self-storage facilities. Let's say about half of those might meet your criteria. About a quarter of those might be ones that are true mom and pops who might be willing to sell. So right there, you have a list of what's called 100 people that you can start contacting to see. And from there, it just takes time to build it up. Now, what we're doing, obviously, we're working with brokers to do the same thing. So it's either direct to the owner or you're going to work with a broker who's already gone direct to the owner and has built a relationship of trust with the owner over time. And now that they're ready to sell, they want to work with that broker. So that broker has a good relationship with the owner. So we're working with brokers as well. And we have relationships that extend back for quite some time with a lot of brokers. So it helps us get in front of those deals. Now, we don't win every single deal that we bid on, of course, but we're usually in the top three or so and the brokers have gotten to know us and trust us over time. For them, it's a matter of, can you close and do you have the capital? Are you going to make this a very difficult process? What does your LOI look like? Is it complicated? Is your contract complicated? They want to know some of those things up front because they're going to position you to the seller. And so they want to know some of those things. So some of the relationships that we built over time, the offers we made helps position us usually within the top three or so bidders for a property. So you make it look easy, but you've put a lot of work <laughs> no, into building the cra- network. Yeah. No, yeah. This building is not the pipeline. easy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly no. right. Kudos to you. What are some of the metrics you look for? I know with multifamily and residential, there's a 1% rule, 2% rule. What are some metrics that investors should look for on a high level that states this is a good deal? So forget those rules. Okay. So storage is a little bit different. Forget those rules. If I'm looking at a deal in a bubble, not looking at the market, I'm just looking at a deal, looking at an OM or something like that. I look at those expenses. I might see the gross potential that probably has a unit mix in there. And I'm using a broker package as an example here. I might have a unit mix in there with some gross potential, whatever, some pro forma rents, et cetera. That's all great and dandy. What I want to look at is the expenses. How are they operating this facility? And what ratio of expense to income are we getting here? So in other words, for every dollar of effective gross income that we're getting that's coming in, what percentage of that dollar, how many cents are going to expenses? In storage, typically, right, depends on the size of the facility, but typically your expense ratio should be roughly 35%. So for every dollar of actual income, you spend about 30-ish, 35, maybe 40 cents on expenses. Now, if we're above that, it could be a reason because of taxes, or payroll. Usually those are the two biggest expenses, real estate taxes and payroll. Well, if I'm going to operate unmanned or unattended, 
then I can remove the payroll or not remove it totally, but minimize it. So that maybe they're paying someone 40 or 30,000 a year to be there full or part time. Well, I can cut that drastically down to maybe even a quarter of that if I use a 1099 person to swing by. So right there, I've already improved the operations of the facility. How are they doing their marketing? I should probably spend no more than maybe 500 to $1,000. It really depends on the size, location of the facility, but somewhere in that range on the marketing of the facility, if they're doing a lot more, you'll see some of these facilities that actually do yellow pages still. And I'm not kidding. Like they'll do the yellow pages. They do these random things because they're true mom and pops. So is that an opportunity for me to improve? What have they repaired recently? If they fixed the roofs and all that and the gate, I really am not going to have that big of a CapEx budget unless I want to paint the facility or something like that, renovate the office. There isn't that much that goes wrong at a facility. So I look at the expenses of what I can improve. Where is that ratio? Is it 50? I've seen it 60% before. So, okay, right there, I know in my mind, I can make those improvements. Now, again, that's just looking at a facility in a bubble in a sense. If I want to take a step back and look at the market as a whole, what am I looking for in the market? Well, I've listened to Joe's podcast a ton and Bigger Pockets and all that stuff. So they're super smart guys. And they talk about economic diversity of the market, job growth and all that stuff. And that is all hundred percent true. Those things are great, but you can take a small facility. In fact, I know a guy who owns an institutional quality portfolio in North Carolina, let's say. I know this isn't public information. It is public in the records, but it wasn't blasted out there on social media. He bought a facility that was 14,000 square feet out in the middle of a fourth year, I would say tertiary rural market. Now, why did he do that? Because it's 14,000 square feet on roughly an acre and a half, and you can make a storage deal work in a rural market. The same rules don't apply to every storage facility within the space as it does to multifamily. But if I was going to buy, let's say, in a nice suburban market where there's some population growth, et cetera, I would look for the occupancy of the competing facilities. I look at their rents and compare them to my subject property. Non-climate controlled rents for a 10 by 10 unit, so 10 feet by 10 feet, 100 square feet, are roughly on average a dollar per foot. Now that changes, so 100 bucks a month, that changes depending on where it's located. In a rural market, you might get $60. In a better market, you might get 120 or whatever. The highest I've ever seen was in Colorado Springs for $180 for a 10 by 10 non-climate controlled unit, which that just blew my mind. So that varies, but how do my rents compare to the subject property and how do their occupancies compare? I want to mention this for your listeners. If anybody here knows about storage, has done some research on it, you've probably come across a number called square feet per person. And that is usually around six or seven feet is average according to who you talk to. So in other words, across the US, there is roughly six to seven square feet per person self-storage in the US. So every man, woman, and child can use six to seven square feet per person as it stands today. Sometimes people will use that six to seven feet per person number and they will apply it to their local market. So in other words, if I look at the market, let's say there's 10 facilities. So my feet per person is 15 feet per person. You might think initially, oh my gosh, we are oversupplied because we're very far above that six to seven feet equilibrium. Right. Conversely, if I'm below that, oh, I'm undersupplied. But what's really important is occupancy. So I need to call the comps or visit them and ask them, do you have any 10 by 10s or five by 10s or whatever available this month or soon or whatever? If they all say, yes, we have plenty. Now I know I truly am oversupplied. If they say, no, we're all booked up. We got a waiting list. Now I know I am not oversupplied. I'm actually okay. Even though the feet per person is telling me it's higher than seven. 
It's just like saying the rents for one apartment is a thousand dollars a month average or fifteen hundred bucks a month average across the U.S. That tells me nothing about rents in New York City or California or Texas. It's just a number. So I wanted to mention that for your listeners that we don't look at that in the market per se. Sure, we want to see population growth. Sure, we want to know what the number is, what the supply is, but we want to know what demand is. What is the occupancy at those facilities? If they're full, we're going to be okay. If they're not full, no matter what that number is, as far as feet per person, if they're not full, we might have a problem. So much good advice. I would imagine being near a college town or having a lot of apartments in the immediate area helps as well. It does. It's a different business model. So when you're in a college town, college students, well, they're in school, right? So for the two semesters, they're in school from September to May or June or whatever it is. And then they leave and they go home or they go on internships or trips or whatever. Then they want to put their stuff in storage. So they utilize all your space in the summer. And then when they come back, they take it all out of storage. Well, your prime leasing season is usually between March and let's say September when people are generally speaking, moving for schools and whatnot. You want somebody in there who's potentially going to stay a lot longer than that. So it really depends on, I don't look favorably personally on facilities located in college towns. It really just depends on the facility and where it is and all that. Now, if there was a deal in Chapel Hill, for example, I would definitely take a look at that pretty closely because it's close to home. I love the area, but I would understand the business dynamic there. So generally speaking, if it was me, I would probably shy away from some of the college town locations just because of that. As far as apartments, you'd be surprised. Most people that use storage actually don't live in apartments. They live in single family homes. So that's where you want your facility to be. I want to see some single family homes around there. And apartments are great. No, I don't have any qualm about that. If we're in a place that has just condos and apartments, so be it if it's a good deal. But I do want to see some single family home development. And I would prefer that if possible. Just because people who have single family homes, they usually own the home. They take care of the bills on time. They usually have a growing family and that's why they then need more space and they're willing to pay for it. That is so interesting. Yeah. Busting a lot of myths here. (laughs) So would you rather an area with older single family homes or newer ones? A lot of new development? That doesn't matter too much. It depends on the market. Okay. Are we in the path of progress? Then yes, I want to see a lot of new developers coming in. So for example, the deal we did in Charlotte in March, if you drove by it, you wouldn't think much of it. It's an older facility built in the early 90s. And the homes around it are older homes. So let's say they're 30 years old or something like that. So you drive around mostly one-story, single-story homes. That's not like anything nice. And it's kind of green around this facility. But if you go down the street about two miles, you have Meritage and D.R. Horton, two of the largest home builders in the U.S., building about 400 homes just down the road from us. So that's helping us basically say, hey, yeah, we need to expand and build more buildings on our site, which is what we're doing right now. So we're adding a 22,000 square foot building onto the property. So that doesn't matter as much as long as if we're in the path of progress, I do want to see some development going on. If we're in a densely located location that just has older homes around, that's totally fine. We're actually going to make an offer on a deal like that today where the homes that surround this facility It is built out. You're not putting anything else there. It's densely populated and the homes are just older and that's okay. This facility is about 90 something percent occupied and the comps are all pretty well occupied as well. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Do you manage your own rental properties? If you do or if you're about to, I want to tell you about RentReady because I'm guessing they have some services that you wish you had. RentReady is a property management software that allows you to manage your business from your computer or phone. With RentReady, you're able to collect rent online and get paid, find the perfect tenant with a built-in screening and listing service, and get your leases signed with the click of a button. And tenants really love using RentReady's app too. 
They can pay rent using the card, ACH, cash. They can set up auto pay, get renter's insurance if you require it. And they can even build their credit score through RentReady's new credit reporting feature. And the best part, RentReady is unlimited. That's right. All this is flat priced. There's no tricks or hidden fees. RentReady is designed for investors who manage their own properties so that you don't have to worry about paying more for building your business. You can start managing and scaling your rental properties without scaling costs. And RentReady has given us an amazing deal to pass on to the best ever listeners. You can get RentReady's annual plan for only 54 bucks at RentReady.com when you use our special code BESTEVER. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com with the code B-E-S-T-E-V-E-R at RentReady.com to get RentReady's annual plan for only 54 bucks. Did you know that credit checks miss 85% of the information landlords and property managers need to verify new tenants? That's a problem. The solution is Rentify. Rentify provides a platform that allows you to instantly access prospective tenants' financial information and compiles it all into a quick and easy-to-read report to help you select the highest quality tenants. You can access income, payroll, past rent payments, non-sufficient funds, and overdraft history all in one place. Rentify's reports instantly verify the full financial picture of the tenant, so there's no chance of being duped with false information. No one likes to be duped. And the best part is that you can have it all at your fingertips in as little as five minutes. Go check out Rentify at TrustRentify.com and stop wasting time and start fast-tracking the tenant screening process with confidence and ease. With Rentify, you'll no longer have to waste hours or even days collecting all the information you need to verify a tenant, which makes life easier for you and your applicants. Visit TrustRentify.com and use the promo code FAIRLESS for 25% off your first purchase. That's T-R-U-S-T-R-E-N-T-I-F-Y dot com and put in the promo code FAIRLESS. That's my last name, F-A-I-R-L-E-S-S, for 25% off your first purchase. I would assume an aging population is more ideal, but my guess is I'm wrong. It just depends. So if you go to the Myrtle Beach, for example, you have a lot of seniors moving there, relocating to that area, and storage is going to do really well there. Now, they're a little bit oversaturated if you look at that foot per person number, that square feet per person number, but really depends on utilization. And sometimes more senior citizens will utilize storage to put a few things in. Generally speaking, it's going to be, if we're in a Charlotte market, for example, I'd rather have somebody with a growing family who has those needs to store Christmas decorations and family stuff and furniture and those kinds of things. Vehicles, I've heard of some folks storing four, five, six cars in a facility, believe it or not. So it really just depends. But a facility like that in a Myrtle Beach area or in another location that has a lot more senior citizens around, it should still do fine. But again, you want to do your homework and see, are the other facilities occupied? Are they doing okay? And what's your facility? What does it look like? What does the subject look like if you're going to acquire it or develop there? What does it look like in that market? You should be okay. I don't prefer one over the other. I might lean a slightly more towards the younger generation, I guess you'd say, than the senior citizen. Interesting. Okay. Chris, are there things that are immediate deal breakers? Size and purchase price usually. And those two things go hand in hand. Also sometimes age, but you'd be surprised how far a paint of coat, a coat of paint will go to spruce up a facility. 
like that one that we did, the very first deal I did, we did the paint job on the whole thing. You would not know the difference between it being an old built in the 80s and 90s and then being built today. So a coat of paint goes a long way on metal and sprucing up facilities, but usually it's size, nothing under $5 million because as your listeners probably know, if you're buying a multifamily deal, if you buy a fourplex or a 400 unit apartment complex, a lot of the contract negotiation and title work and everything is all the same. Now your unit walks are going to take a lot longer, but otherwise it's all pretty much the same as far as timing and required intensity of getting the deal closed. So we'd rather go a bit larger. $5 million purchase price is about the cutoff of what we look at and obviously location. So we're not going to go into unbusiness friendly locations. I'm actually originally from California and I'm not going to look at any deals in California. I see them come across my desk and it's just immediate delete. So sad to say that, but that's the way it is right now. Chris, do you run into any zoning issues? You mentioned storing outdoor RVs and whatnot. Has that ever been a problem? That's a great question. So we're looking at a deal. I can't disclose too much because we have it under contract. We just put it in a contract last Thursday, but we were looking at doing a parking lot expansion. And we're like, hey, this is great. We got an extra, I forgot what it was. They call it an acre and a half, right? You can do a lot with an acre and a half. So let's put some RV parking out there because we called all the comps and literally, man, I'm telling you, out of five or six comps, they were all full practically with RV parking. So yeah, this is going to crush it out here. We called the city and nope, you can't do it out there because the zoning is an issue. When they built the facility, they got a special use permit that they could do it here. But since that time, the zoning has changed or whatnot, and we can't do the parking there. So that's causing an issue. Now we could do it if we did it a certain way, but it's more expensive. So absolutely. Before you close... Word of advice, if in storage, value add, there's a nuance to that, but a lot of guys and gals will look for value add deals, meaning it has three acres of land with an extra acre to develop, right? You can add on more units or whatever. Before you close on that, really before you make your offer, you want to check with the county to make sure that zoned that you can do the expansion that you're planning to do. So you always want to check on that. But yeah, it's an issue because a lot of municipalities don't like the way storage looks. It's just ugly buildings. It's not fancy. It doesn't bring in a lot of tax revenue. Some real estate taxes, of course, but it's not an employment driver. And of course, if you're running them unattended, it's really not an employment driver there. So a lot of places don't like self-storage. So they want to see it either really fancy. We've seen some where they've built them four or five stories up, literally look like apartments or something or Hogwarts or whatever. It's just some crazy building, but it's actually storage. Or they want you to do ground level retail and the storage can be above that. They want you to do some sort of mixed use there with that. So yeah, great question. Could be an issue. And what are your thoughts on second and third level storage? Oh, it's fine. We have a deal in the contract now. It's a three-story deal, 80,000 gross square feet, 500 plus units. Love it, man. Love that kind of construction. If you're looking to acquire it and let's say you want to run it with a person there, obviously that makes a lot of sense. If you want to run it unattended, it can kind of take a second to get your brain wrapped around that. But really, you're concerned with safety, of course, maybe the elevators break or something like that. Well, if the elevator breaks and the manager is there on site, he can't do anything anyway. They have to call the fire department, the police. There's always a call button in there that works to call them directly. So to get them out of the elevator, you have cameras in there. You can view and see everything. Some people feel like, oh man, if there's nobody on site, do I feel safe there? If you've ever been to a store facility after 9 p.m., they're kind of scary, no matter how clean and nice they are, because they're just like cavernous buildings. So generally speaking, people go during the daytime to get their stuff out or put their stuff into a facility. But three-story deals, climate control, love them. They're fantastic facilities. Great arguments you just made. Have you ever built any ground up? We're doing one right now. Actually, so my background is all acquisitions of existing, and then we might do an extension or expansion on something. So we're doing that right now, 22,000 square foot expansion. It's about 150, 170 units. I, I 
it always gets mixed up in my head, but two story bi-level deal. So basically what that means is the slope of the land allows us to do access to both the first and second floor from technically the ground level. So it's a fantastic deal over there in Charlotte, North Carolina. Interesting. What are the returns for your investors on storage investments? We aim for a 7% preferred return for our investors average over the whole period. So let's say we're modeling a five or seven year hold. So 7% return. So of course, years one and two are going to be lower than that. Years three, four, and five, obviously we catch up at that point in time. Anything beyond a seven, we split that up up to a 13 and beyond a 13 is 50-50. So on the exit, we're aiming for a mid-teens IRR, 15, 18%, somewhere in there. Obviously, if it's better, more is better. It's great. We think the assets that we're buying are going to have nice cap rates in the future. And they're well-located deals that are going to be in demand, we think. So that's what we look for right now. You kind of got to be in the business, right? And talking to people and talking to brokers and all that stuff. The Wall Street Journal, as of this interview, today is July 7th, 2021. So as of this interview, the Wall Street Journal just put out an article yesterday on July 6th, 2021, literally stating on their front page, if you scroll down on the website, self-storage weathers the pandemic better than other asset classes, something like that. And the article goes on to talk about how self-storage has performed during the COVID-19 pandemic and then coming out of that into this year. So when articles like that get out into the world and other investors read that kind of stuff, they realize, oh my gosh, this is a great investment, a great opportunity. Well, what happens if there's less perceived risk, right? Your return goes down. So that's where we're at right now in this space. It's happening in mobile home parks. It's happening in nice class A, class B apartment complexes. And it has been happening in the self-storage industry for quite some time now. But we aim for a 7% preferred return. And then the other metrics I mentioned from there. Yeah. And a great hedge against the looming downturn yeah, absolutely. of the economy. That's the idea. If I feel like this asset class is less risky than stocks or whatever else it's going to be, then that's going to drive down the return, drive up the price because it's going to be in more demand, right? It's from investors, demand, supply, demand equilibrium there. So it's going to drive up the price, drive down the returns. But if you feel comfortable with the asset class, you understand it as best you can, then you know, okay, I'm buying into something that not just weathered one pandemic or one downturn, but two, also in 2008, nine and 10, self-storage performed really well during that time. What is the biggest pain point in managing self-storage? Well, we don't manage anything ourselves. We have a third-party management company that does all that. I would say the biggest pain point is working with and talking to tenants who want to rent and just that side of things. I've done that in the past. What we've done before is before we actually close a facility, I will start a Facebook page for the facility and set up a Google number and put that as the number to call to rent a unit. And we usually let the seller know this and they can call and see, and I'll just run it separately from the website. I don't like link it back to the website or anything. I just want to see who's searching for storage in the area and I'll handle those phone calls and I'll talk to those customers And it can be kind of tough getting them to understand how storage works sometimes, not all the time. But I think handling those types of calls and then obviously overseeing the manager who goes there as boots on the ground, you want to make sure that they're doing a good job picking up trash and getting the grounds clean, et cetera. There's always trade-offs to everything that you do. So the trade-off for an unattended facility is sometimes people will leave stuff there because they know no one will come and get it and no one's going to tell them not to leave it there by the dumpster or whatever. So that could be kind of a pain in the butt trying to get stuff hauled off and cleaned up at the facility. You make this sound really hands-off. How often do you hear from your property manager? We were just on the call with them the other day about something unrelated, but we do an asset management call about every two weeks. Okay. Uh, with them, yeah. So your PM companies are so good that they can handle all the trash, yeah. the weeds, yeah. the nuisances. Yeah. This one's local. So I was there about a month ago, took some pictures because the grass had kind of grown up in some spots. 
So we just sent those over to the property management company and said, hey, let's get this taken care of. And so they sent it over to the landscapers and the landscapers went out there and sprayed. So we went back out there and saw that it was all dying. So to make sure they get those things cleaned up. This is not hands-off by any means. So we had to renegotiate the one that we have. It has a warehouse on it that's being leased. I've never seen this before. The warehouse is about 2,500 square feet. You go inside and there's a couple different rooms, but the main room in the middle is a giant professional poker table with a monitor. <laughs> Let's say I'm the dealer, right? You're on the camera, I'm the dealer. Behind me is a TV with security camera feeds that come in there. So anybody playing the game can see who's at the doors and the entrances to the warehouse. They're just good old boys. We've met them and talked to them. They're actually all retired guys. I guess you go there and play high stakes poker. I don't know. We just kind of leave them alone, but we had to renegotiate the lease on that to get it up to where it was market. So some of those things we do get hands-on with ourselves and that's okay. But generally speaking, that's what you're paying the property management company to do. They're taking the calls. They're dealing with the issues. They're dealing with the overlocks. They're dealing with the auctions. If somebody doesn't pay over time, they're dealing with taking late payments. They're reminding them of when their payment is due, reminding them if they're late. They're the ones who are handling all that stuff. Our management company, I've heard some horror stories out there. And I'll mention Copper Storage Solutions. We don't get paid anything for saying that, okay? Copper Storage Solutions, if anybody's looking, wondering who we use, Bob Copper and his team over there have done a great job. Self Storage 101 is their website. Anyway, they did a market study and on one of our asset management calls, he said, hey, guess what? Good news. We raised your rents on everybody who's been there for over, I think it was like six months or a year. We raised them 9% because we found out the market could sustain that and they could sustain that as well. And if they move out, that's okay because there's enough demand and we feel pretty confident we can backfill those units. That's incredible. Like, okay, cool, great. I don't need to think about that. I've heard horror stories where the management company is asking you what you want the rents to be raised to. And it's like, you tell me, you're the management company, you do all the stuff. So anyway, so they do a great job for us. That is incredible. Chris, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Be open to changing your mind when presented with new advice or new information. This applies, I think, not just real estate, but in our lives, right? So we might have a preconceived idea of something, whatever it might be. For example, self-storage is the best real estate asset class you can buy, hands down. Well, maybe you're presented with new evidence that says mobile home parks are actually a bit better. Apartments in certain markets are actually better. So we should be willing to change our mind when presented with new evidence or new information. I love that. Chris, are you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Chris, what's the best ever book you recently read? Oh man, I'm reading right now Ray Dalio's Principles. And then before that was Stephen Schwartzman's What It Takes, I think it is. And that was a great book on building a fantastic business, I thought. And then beyond that, I think Gary Keller has some really good stuff. The One Thing, which I'm sure has been mentioned numerous times. And then The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. I think it has a pretty good blueprint in there of what you need to do in order to build wealth in this business. So I really like Gary Keller. Great recommendations. Chris, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Doing our webinars, actually. So we do a webinar weekly on every Tuesday. It alternates between myself and the other partners on the self-storage front. So we get on there and try to help folks answer any questions that they might have. Talk about a topic as well. So I think mine for next week is just basically some mid-year encouragement for self-storage investors. Previous to that, we've done development. We've done some underwriting case studies. We've done how to find deals in your market, how to vet a deal, all kinds of stuff like that, how to find a good partner, et cetera. So we try to give back in that way. Chris, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? I'm on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook. LinkedIn is a really good place to reach me. And then you can always email me, Chris, K-R-I-S at PassiveInvesting.com. Chris, I feel like I went to a self-storage boot camp today, a mastermind (laughs) all in one. You've given us a tremendous amount of value in how to find deals, how to run them, 
Thank you so much for sharing all of your great advice. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us as well. Have a best ever day. Thank you so much, Josh.